This is an ABC podcast. Aussies are a surf-loving culture. We're famous for it. And it's no wonder because our beaches are undeniably the best in the world. Hands down, no contest. We love the beach so much, most of the population hugs the coastline, with 85% of Aussies living 50 k's from the sea. And once it's summer, it's time to hit the beach and not much stops us from getting in the water. Except perhaps a shark. Yeah, mate, just been advised of a code 16 in the surf break. Uh, are you planning to close your beach uh, uh, evacuate? Yes, I think we will be closing the beach. Surf lifesavers are already out patrolling the beaches and helicopters are already scanning for great whites in the water. Statistics, though, show the risk of an encounter with a shark is extremely low. Yet, sharks loom large in our psyche. Today, on Australia Wide, we head to the white shark capital of the world, Port Lincoln in South Australia. Preeminent shark experts are gathered there to talk about the high stakes for communities affected by shark bites and why so many of us fear and loathe great whites. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. The Neptune Islands is a rugged outcrop of four rocky islands that lie about 60 k's off Port Lincoln on South Australia's Eyre Peninsula. The area is a natural feeding ground for the endangered and protected great white shark and the Neptune Islands Marine Sanctuary is considered an internationally significant site for the apex predator. It's fitting then that it's in this part of Australia that is playing host to a conference this week. It's bringing together experts in the field of white shark research. Right now, scientists and shark experts from across the globe have all gathered in Port Lincoln to talk all things great white shark. And I'm joined by two of the conference delegates now, Professor Chris Lowe, who's with the Department of Biological Sciences Shark Lab at California State University in the United States. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. Not at all. And Sarah Varys, who is the CEO of Shark Spotters, a South African non-profit organisation. Now, this conference being in Port Lincoln is obviously significant. And I understand some of the delegates even travelled out to Neptune Island yesterday. But tell me about, about Port Lincoln as a place. Maybe you want to kick off, Chris. Tell me about it as a place and why it's significant for shark research. Yeah, so of course, um, being a person who's been studying sharks around the globe for 40 years, you know, it's hard to not look at Port Lincoln as being a really important place in terms of what we know about white sharks. And, and it's in, it's kind of really important to understand the research that's been done here, the science that's been done here, and, and how it's contributed to our global understanding of white sharks. Tell me what it has contributed. What is it so that is so special about that place? Well, you know, white sharks are really difficult animals to study. They're highly mobile. We, we've learned they can travel thousands and thousands of kilometers. Um, you know, they, they feed on a variety of different things. And getting access to them to study them has probably been the biggest challenge. So when you find places where they aggregate, that, that provides scientists an opportunity to basically go survey and ask, you know, what are you doing here? Where are you going to go next? And, and why is this place important? So I think, you know, Port Lincoln's historically been one of those locations, um, just like places in California, like the Farallons and off to South Africa and the Cape. So those places have become globally important to contributing to our understanding about 
who white sharks are and what they do. Sarah, I noticed that Chris is using the term white sharks a lot, but here in Australia we often say great white sharks. What's that about? It's really just uh, semantics. You know, we as scientists generally call them white sharks. Um, The kind of great bit is not not really that necessary. (laughs) Um, They're no greater than any other shark. Um, But so and I know also I think in Australia you call them white pointers as well. Um, It's just it's one of the reasons why scientists use scientific names so that, you know, you're referring to the same shark wherever you are. But in South Africa, also generally the general public, it's great white sharks. But scientists generally refer to them as white sharks. Is that something to do with the psyche of sharks, though? That we, you know, there's something about a shark that brings in all of this kind of, they're, you know, they're a majestic creature, they're a terrifying creature. There's all of this kind of, not mythology. I mean, some of it, it's true, but it's it's how, our feelings towards sharks that we stick this grate in front of it. Yeah, I think particularly towards white sharks. You know, no one's sort of saying like the great pajama shark because <laughs> um, they're kind of small and 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 don't have that kind of thing. But the white sharks, you know, they are large predatory sharks. They are really awe inspiring and also something to be uh, wary of as well in terms of safety. So definitely, I think that does apply to it. This conference does come at an interesting time for the Air Peninsula with um, shark attacks very much to mind for locals. There was two fatal attacks on the Air Peninsula this year and the the most recent was just earlier this month when a 55-year-old surfer was knocked off a surfboard at Streaky Bay. Now, Sarah, when you're in a community that's had that experience like you are right now, in your experience, what are the repercussions for communities like the Air Peninsula in the aftermath of that? Well, I think they can be sort of like really wide ranging and it's really um, it's it's one of the hardest things is to pinpoint exactly what they are. But generally, shark bite impacts can be social. So the sort of collective trauma that communities feel and we definitely, I think, in the conference have have seen that and also both coming from shark bite areas, we're very aware of that. Um, they can be economic. You know, if you have less people coming to the beach, then you have less people coming to rent surfboards, to buy coffee in the coffee shops. So they can be economic. And then also they can ultimately be environmental if you introduce things like lethal shark control, which obviously impacts white sharks, but also non-target shark species as well. So they can be really wide ranging. And we certainly need to do a lot more research to sort of quantify those effects, because in some areas they can be quite large and in other areas people are much more accepting. So it is, again, it's everything with shark safety is very site specific. The media do pounce on shark attacks. And or, well, and I've used that word there, shark attacks rather than <laughs> shark bites, which both of you I've noticed as you so I'm getting into semantics here but I do think it's important in terms of how we talk about sharks Chris are shark bites becoming more common and why are you saying bites now rather than attacks yeah so so that's that's where behavior comes into play and this is the part that we still don't understand so we're we're while we're making great advances in learning more about white sharks and white shark behavior and that's largely based on new technology and believe it or not, access to animals. There's more animals. Um, but the other part of this coin is you, you can't have bites unless there are people in the water. And one of the things we're beginning to recognize is that while we're learning a lot about white sharks, we still really don't know a lot about human behavior. How many people are in the water? What are they doing? When are they near sharks? So, so this is a gap. <clears throat> the other thing, too, is the reason why we don't refer to them as attacks, because that means we have to understand the motivation as to why a shark would bite a person to begin with. 
So, and that's still largely unknown. So we, we break bites down into two categories, provoked and unprovoked. And the provoked ones are easy to explain. If you mess with a shark and it turns around and bites you, that was a provoked incident. But a lot of times people are out seemingly minding their own business when a shark comes over and bites them. So would you both argue that the tide needs to focus more on human behavior than how to deter sharks coming into contact with humans? Is that where you come from on that? I think definitely. I think, you know, any shark bite mitigation, it's it's not really about sharks. The sharks are in the ocean. They're, you know, doing what they do. It's about managing people. And so we have to look at the different ways that we're managing people. And, and we really actually need more data around that to understand how to do it better. Um, but, you know, even even things like lethal control, it's while you're it's managing the sharks, it's managing people's perceptions of safety and and their feelings of safety. And so that's really the kind of core focus, I think, that needs to be going forwards is how do we get people to understand more about sharks? How do we get them to take responsibility for their own safety? And, you know, how do we how do we make shark bites not have that? really vast impact that is disproportionate to the incident that takes place. The incidents are incredibly traumatic and tragic, but they are affect a small number of people directly, but just have these wider knock-on impacts on whole communities. And it's to try and manage those knock-on impacts that I think is the most important thing. Yeah. And I was just going to echo that because, you know, Sarah's in a place where they've they've been dealing with this for a very long time and, and a range of of different mitigation strategies on how to deal with this. And one of the things that we have found is that education is turning out to be a very important tool to help people better understand what happens because largely the fear and even the, the angst that comes from these incidents are largely based on the fact that there's still a lot we don't understand. So the more we teach people about what we learn about these sharks, we're finding that fear goes down. And, and the other thing that, that's really difficult is that when we try to explain that to them, the rarity of this relative to all the other risks that we encounter in our daily lives, um, that it becomes very difficult for people to put that in perspective. As people learn more about these animals and begin to better understand, we know we norm we see that the perspective becomes more normalized. In other words, people start to understand it. Now I'm gonna give this the classic American example. Mm -hmm. In the US, we have mass shootings so frequently that that has become normalized in our society. But shark bites are so rare that when they occur, they get this disproportionate media attention and quite often this disproportionate response. So it's it's sad to think that we have to have these other sorts of traumas and that we normalize that. But through education, through better understanding, we think some of that will start to go away. Goodness, when we were talking earlier, myself and the producer of Australia Wide, Asha, we were talking about, you know, you're more likely to have a bingo with a kangaroo in Australia by far than a shark. Um, because on the roads, we've all, like any anybody driving around regional Australia is, has come in, in touch with kangaroos, but, you know, sharks are built up to this level. Do you think Australians, just out of interest, are more relaxed around sharks and shark risk compared to other communities around the world? Oh, that's hard. That's hard for me to say because, I, I you know, I'm here um, learning a a lot about how Australia uh, does research and and what I know very, even less about is how Australians relate to their their natural environments. Now in California in the US, I'm far more familiar, 
But but what I'm not surprised at is how outdoorsy, let's put it that way, Australians are, how they love to enjoy their environments. So I, I, I think that sometimes that response to shark bites seems kind of counter to that culture. And in mm-hmm. California, we're very outdoorsy people. We love being outdoors, um, but it's it's um, it's a different ethos. And, and I wonder how much of that has been affected by the way we've dealt with these things decades ago and, and how changing that culture is kind of difficult sometimes. Explain that a bit more. What do you mean? Well, you know, in terms of what people expect in response to a bite, and, and obviously these are traumatic events. They're very traumatic for families. They're traumatic for communities. But, but at the end of the day, you go, well, what can we do about this? And, I, and again, I'm going to speak as an American who lives in a very gun-happy country. You know, we have mass shootings all the time, and, and people go, well, what are we going to do about this? And at the end of the day, we don't do anything when there are plausible solutions. So, you know, I, I kind of look at it through that lens. Now, I'm not a social scientist. I'm just a lowly biologist, but I collaborate with a psychologist. I collaborate with an ecotourism expert. I collaborate with an environmental economist, and they're helping me try to understand how does this impact a community? So what are the impacts of shark bites on a community? And, and it's, it's really insightful for me to work with folks that look at things through those different lenses. So I think for me, I, you know, I don't understand enough about Australian culture. Um, you know, I know a lot about their science, mm. but not enough about <laughs> your culture. And it's interesting to learn more about this. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan, and I'm speaking to Professor Chris Lowe, who is an expert on sharks from California State University. And he's joined by Sarah Varas, who is the CEO of Shark Spotters, which is based in South Africa. Now, news of shark attacks in Cape Town in South Africa tends to get a lot of media attention, and it does tend to go global, like this attack on a visiting tourist a year ago. I couldn't even see the shark coming up. But all I saw was she was the shark jumped up and it didn't even bite like all the way. I ain't going in the water. Sarah, what about in terms of that cultural question about how Australia deals with shark bites? What what have you noticed as someone who's coming from the South African perspective? Well, I think it's interesting. So I have a little bit, not a huge amount, but a little bit more experience with Australian shark bite stuff than Chris, because in 2014, I came over and I did a bit of a tour around WA, Queensland and New South Wales, talking to people about shark safety and stuff. And I think, you know, the I was looking at the stats, 85% of people in Australia live within 50 kilometers of the coastline. So it's the majority of the population here live on the beach, they spend their lives on the beach and there's a, it's part of their culture, it's part of their livelihood, you know, the surf life-saving culture is massive here and so then I think it becomes it's tricky then because something that threatens, and I say in inverted commas because, you know, they are such rare incidents, but something that threatens that culture um, then has this big impact, but, you know, putting it in perspective, it's, I'm sure that there's far more drownings in Australia than there are shark bites, but it doesn't have that same big impact. So it's trying to manage that. And I think my experience of Australia is they're incredibly passionate either way. Um, <laughs> That's so, very true. So if you look at like the WA when they introduced that shark call, it was sort of introduced very much um, as a you know strong. There was strong political motivation to introduce a shark call. But we have to be seen. You know, large, uh, a loud proportion of society were like, we need to do something about the shark problem. And then very quickly afterwards, um, <laughs> an even louder sort 
sort of a group of the community went, actually, but we don't want to kill the sharks. We don't want to do lethal control. So I think it's just it's and it's great that people are passionate because, you know, it's important that we care about these things. And I think, yeah, again, as Chris said, just understanding more about that and understanding before we implement um, safety measures, like having a look and trying to gauge people's, you know, what is what do people want? And it's not always the loudest voice that is the that represents the general consensus of things. Just in in terms of that psychology, I'll give you an example from my own life. I this is only two Saturdays ago. I, I go swimming at dawn, which from shark um, bite behaviour is probably not best practice, I would understand. Um, there was a shark in the water. We were all taken out of the water and all the open water swimmers drove to the nearest beach with a um, shark net and went for a swim there. What do you make of that in terms of the psychology of that? I, I think that's a great example of you modifying your behaviour to a to deal with a risk that you've been informed about. And, and that's, I think, exactly what we want to see. Because the, the reality of it is, as these animals recover, because they're protected pretty much in all places, and we're seeing good recovery in certain places, we're seeing more people use the ocean than ever before. And we should. It's a great place to, to go out and enjoy. Um, but you put the two together, and you do kind of increase your probability of a neg- negative encounter, right? So all we can do is better understand how sharks behave around people and then give them information that they can use to make their own decisions and choices about what to do. So I would say you just gave probably one of the best examples of what we would hope to see from what we know so far. And that is you can change your behavior, but we're not going to be able to change the shark's behavior. I wasn't actually looking for a gold star. I was just interested. <laughs> well, you earned it. You earned it anyway. <laughs> I was just interested in the psychology of what we did because part of me was thinking, that's ridiculous. The shark has already swum off. It's fine. Um, but anyway. Shark culling is controversial, but it's been standard practice at some of Queensland's most popular beaches since the early 60s. The government program, which involves using more than 170 baited drumlines in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, was designed to protect swimmers. But conservationists say it's cruel and outdated. In Australia, state governments have employed things like drumlines, shark tagging and aerial surveillance to monitor sharks and try to prevent shark attacks. Chris, what are they doing in California? What's happening in other parts of the world? Yeah, so in California, we we have... uh, I would say regular, re- relatively high bite rates. And most of our bites are from white sharks compared to any other species. It ranges anywhere from zero to seven per year. Um, California coastline is a very large coastline and we have a very large population. So our estimations are about 38 million people are going in the water on California coasts every year. Wow. So, so when you look at that proportionally, you know, that bite rate of zero to seven per year is actually incredibly low, like incredibly low. Um, But what the state of California has done, despite their occasional fatalities, is is nothing in regards to mitigation. So, you know, we work very closely with lifeguards, lifeguards' responsibility or keeping people safe at the beach. We work very hard to give them the most up-to-date data and information that we have about shark behavior. And after that, they do, like done in many places, they advise the public. Sometimes they pull people out of the water, just like you recently experienced. And in other cases, they post signs warning them that this is shark habitat. But the state of California ha- has really never adopted any other 
form of mitigation. And, and I always find it fascinating as to why. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with these regional differences in culture and ethos. So Californians are very, um, you know, conservation minded, you know, group in the United States. You know, I'm, I'm mainly comparing it with other states in the U.S. And, and they, they deal with things very, you know, kind of surfer dude type, you know, <laughs> mentality. They mm-hmm. just let things slide. So I think that that differs. And one of the very interesting things that I've learned from this conference is just how different things are in many places. And what we're trying to find are the similarities and how we can learn from those. There's been a hundred years, I think I was reading in some of your papers, there's been a hundred years of study done on the white shark, not the great white shark. But yes, a film called Jaws, which I believe was filmed near where you grew up, um, Chris, did an awful lot of damage in terms of how we all feel of a dusk when we can see the sun coming over the horizon and we're swimming on our own in the water. How do you unravel that psyche? What needs to be done to unravel that psyche? Yeah, you know, that's that's a really interesting question. And psychologists, you know, they even have a name for it. It's the Jaws effect, right? So, um, you know, what's really interesting about that is the time that that book and movie came out, we really knew nothing about white sharks. Uh, it was it was a total blank slate. And it became really easy for the storytellers like Peter Benchley and, and Steven Spielberg to create this monster that we built in our own minds. And what's really interesting about that is evolutionarily there are reasons why we pay attention to the things that scare us. And, and you know, in fact, that's why people go to horror movies and spend millions of dollars making them. But but we've created that monster kind of in our own heads. And what we're seeing now that we're learning more about them is is a completely different view. Like, for example, in California, we just published this study where we flew drone surveys over these beaches where we have aggregations of white sharks, mostly juveniles, you know, anywhere from a meter and a half to three meters long. And there are people around those sharks every single day and nobody's being bitten. So it's giving us, and and by the way, Mm. everybody has drones in California and they put it online and people are seeing that all the time. So it's become this normalization. So it used to be surfers, you know, if they heard there was white shark off the beach, they'd paddle in. Now, based at least on what they see at their local beaches, you know, they they come out of the water. They go, yeah, I saw two white sharks today. It was kind of mm. cool. Um, and and we, we don't know why that's the case and why it differs maybe from other locations. But we don't know whether that behavior will change either. So for the time being, what we've learned is that people are around sharks all the time and it doesn't match what they've been kind of taught to think about white sharks. Sarah, before I let you both go, you've very much looked at what the jaws effect does in a community once there has been an attack or sorry, a shark bite. How how do people, how do communities recover from that and to encourage people back to their peaches, encourage people back to visit their, what are often very beautiful places? What we found in Cape Town was when we had a number of shark bites in the early 2000s, people thought it was a rogue shark that was coming in and we didn't have any proper data which showed that it wasn't, even though we kind of knew it wasn't. Mm. There was no data that showed that it wasn't. And so we, you know, we've now done 20 years of white shark uh, research in False Bay in South Africa. And we can very clearly say, you know, these are the reasons the sharks are here. They are here year round. They use different areas within the bay in that year. So your risk changes. 
And this is what you can do to to manage that risk. So, you know, we know that they're close to shore during spring and summer, which is also the time that we're obviously on the beach. And so we know that spatial overlap is high then. And so, you know, man, we can manage behaviours then. But really, it comes down to understanding shark behavior and human behavior and and teaching people about both of them so uh, you know i'd like to add to that you know as a visitor to australia never been in south australia before i have to tell you port lincoln is a classic example of this everywhere i walk in this town i see pictures of sharks (laughs) i see paintings i see murals Uh, they're everywhere they're part of the culture here and when you look at that, you think, here's a community that is that has taken a different perspective mm. of white sharks. And, and, it, and it's it, it, I think it's a great example of how a community, instead of saying, oh, these these are dangerous animals, we have to do something about that. People are looking at them as as being an important part of their community, an economic driver in their community, something that puts their community on the map for a good reason. Isn't that incredible, the difference in perspective? Professor Chris Lowe, who is with the Department of Biological Sciences Shark Lab at California State University in the US, and Sarah Varys, who is the CEO of Shark Spotters, which is a South African non-profit organisation. I've really enjoyed speaking to you both from Port Lincoln. And um, all the best with the White Shark Conference. What a fascinating thing to be at. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And that is Australia Wide for this Thursday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheers. This is an ABC podcast.